So we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, this is what all the Christian, all the Christians' hope is 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 built upon: the fact that we serve a living Savior. And uh, the passage we're going to be looking at this morning is uh, generally from Acts chapter 26, uh, verses 1 through 27. And would you just listen as I as I read for you? Acts chapter 26, verse 1, it says, And Agrippa said to Paul, You're permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. Paul said, In regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today, especially because you are an expert in all the customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So then all the Jews know of my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem, since they have known about me for a long time previously, if they are willing to testify, that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. And now I'm standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, The promise to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God day and night. And for this hope, O King, I am being accused by Jews. Why is it considered unbelievable among you people if God does raise the dead? So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. While I was engaged in this and journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the high priest, At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But arise and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, delivering you from the Jews, from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Consequently, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. And so, having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he should be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles." Now, while Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. 
This is the reading of the word of God this morning. May he add his blessing to its reading and its preaching today. Amen. You may be seated. Why don't we pray together as we start this morning. Lord, we, uh, we come to your word uh, to, to sit under the instruction of a living God who has shown the power of life that is in you through raising our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. He who was delivered over for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. The death he died, Lord, he died to sin once for all. And the life he now lives, he lives to you. You've raised him from the dead. He's never to die again. Death no longer has hold on him. It was impossible for him to be kept or held in death's power. You raised him again from the dead on the third day. Lord, we thank you for the glorious news of the resurrection of Christ, that seal that confirms everything else that we say about Jesus Christ, our Lord. Lord, your testimony to us, your vindication of him, the reason for our great hope in his name. Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes this morning, that you would enlighten uh, the eyes of our hearts so that we would know more fully the, the hope of your calling, the riches of your inheritance in the saints and the power of God that is towards us who believe. All these things being in accord with the resurrection of Christ from the dead, Lord, I pray that you would help us know that more fully this morning. Be with us as we consider this word. And may the risen Christ be worshipped and praised from our hearts together this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, today's uh, sermon title is The Unbelievable Resurrection. It's not an overstatement to say that the entirety of Christianity hinges upon the fact of the resurrection. Um, Let's get settled up here a little bit. Keep dropping stuff, distracted. It's not an overstatement to say that the entirety of Christianity hinges on the fact of the resurrection. That Christ, after his sufferings for our sins, once for all time, was literally, physically, bodily, historically, resurrected from the dead. This is a reality of history. If that fact, or if that statement is not true, then there is no Christianity. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ has not been raised then our faith in him is worthless, and we are still in our sins. See, the uh, cross of Christ, which we were remembering and uh, celebrating on Good Friday, had a great time together Friday evening here with those of you who attended. Um, The cross is the son's vindication of his father. Romans 3, 25 through 26, it tells us that the reason the Son of God died upon the cross was to demonstrate the righteousness of God. It was to prove that God truly is a righteous God. The reason why that proof was needed, that demonstration of His righteousness was needed, was because God is also a God of grace, a God of, of, of compassion and mercy who justifies ungodly people. Now, how can a righteous God, a God who is a righteous judge, who has indignation towards sinners every day, look upon sinners and say that they are his friends? Or call Moses his servant? Or speak of David, this adulterating, murderous David? Speak of David as a man after his own heart? How can a righteous God speak of sinners like that? Well, the cross is the Father's answer to that question. The Son was dying upon the cross to vindicate the righteousness of the Father, to prove that when God forgives sinners like you and me, He does not do it in a way that compromises His righteousness. He does it in a way that maintains 
fully his holy and righteous character so that now he can be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So the cross was the son's vindication of the father, but in the resurrection, the role is reversed. The resurrection serves as the father's vindication of his son. As Romans 1.4 puts it, the, the resurrection of Christ is the father's powerful declaration by the Holy Spirit that Jesus truly is the son of God. Or as Romans 4.25 tells us, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is proof that now in Jesus Christ there is justification to be had for sinners like us in Jesus' name. He was delivered over for our trespasses. That means he, he was handed over to death to fully satisfy the wrath of God for our sins in our place, to stand in our law place. To be condemned before God on our behalf so that in His resurrection it might be proven and demonstrated that in Jesus' name, you and I can now be declared righteous in the presence of God. Fully forgiven of our sin, wiped clean from every stain and, and blot and blemish, and made, to pre made presented before God with perfection and holiness. The resurrection is the Father's proof and demonstration that His Son has accomplished everything necessary to present us spotless and without blemish in God's presence. Hebrews 10, 14, it describes that reality as uh, the Son uh, perfecting for all time by a single offering those who are being sanctified. That by his one offering, Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The resurrection is proof that that statement is true. That we don't need our own obedience to make us acceptable before God. We don't need things like purgatory. We don't need things like confession to a priest. We don't need things like baptism or anything else that we do in our own strength in order to be made right in the presence of God. Jesus Christ is enough. That's what the resurrection proves to us. I think Joel Beakey captured this well in his uh, second volume of Reformed Systematic Theology, page 903, if you want to know. Joel Beakey wrote, What a glorious message the empty tomb conveyed. The Lord is risen indeed. All the promises of blessing and salvation lie wrapped up in this wonderful news. The best, now listen to this, all right? The best news ever heard came from a graveyard. Oh, victorious resurrection. Death is disarmed. Sin is subdued. The world is overcome. Satan is trodden underfoot. The grave is sanctified. Hell is conquered and the old man is mortified. Do you see it? Do you embrace it? Beaky asks. Redemption is accomplished. Eternal life is secured. Justice is satisfied. The curse of the law is buried. Guilt is paid. Debt is canceled. God's amen to the all-sufficient work of Christ is loudly declared. All of salvation is verified. Christianity is true. Jesus is alive. Hallelujah. Beaky writes. And none of that's true if Jesus didn't truly rise from the dead. Self-admittedly, Christianity confesses that everything hinges upon the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 14. The resurrection never took place, then our entire faith is in vain. It's empty and meaningless. Nothing more than a house of cards ready to fall. Now the enemies of Christ and the enemies of Christianity have recognized this from the beginning. They've known that if you want to disprove Christianity, then you must disprove the claim that Jesus was raised from the dead never to die again. Now, most of us, if not all of us, recognize that even today, we live in a day of extreme skepticism. Especially in regards to Christ and Christianity. I, in fact, I don't think it would be an overstatement. I don't think it would be wrong to say that an undercurrent of doubt and even antagonism against the claims of Christ has been flowing throughout Western civilization from the time of the Enlightenment. 
There's been this effort to find any and every excuse not to believe in the reality of God or to find some intellectual or logical reason not to believe in his son whom he raised from the dead. And as much good as our scientific and technological advancements have given us, they have all been utilized as means of discrediting faith in Christ Jesus. Everything from biology to astronomy to geology, biochemistry, sociology, anthropology, all of these different branches of sciences have been uh, combining together to build a case against, um, against our God, proving, seeking to prove that we have no need for a God of the gaps or a blind watchmaker to be the one that we worship. We think that because we understand things like atomic mass and speed of light and chemistry and gravitational force and rocket science, or because each one of us holds in our pocket more computing power than, 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 than the entirety of what, used, what was used to land a man on the moon, that somehow that means that we no longer have a need to believe in things like a man who claimed to be God rising from the dead. Now, beloved, I think that even we who truly do believe in Christ have been impacted by the skepticism. Because we're facing a world so entrenched in naturalistic materialism that is so vehemently scoffing at any notion of the supernatural, we find ourselves tempted to be ashamed of declaring boldly to the world that Jesus Christ truly has risen from the dead, proving that he truly is Savior and Lord. We can even find ourselves shamed into silence in our workplaces or at family functions or in stores or walking down the streets of our neighborhood. Yesterday, Jamie and I were out for a walk with the girls and we ran into someone and started trying to witness to this person and the, the, uh, the power of his antagonism was so strong. It was difficult and we can allow that to shame us into silence or intimidate us and keep us from speaking of the truth of Christ. Now, I want us to, all to acknowledge, I'm going to freely acknowledge that we definitely are up against a world that ravenously craves any reason not to believe in Jesus Christ. In fact, that desire not to believe in Christ will cause them to cling to anything, no matter how ridiculous it might be, if it means that in the slightest, their consciences are liberated from the need to acknowledge the reality of God. Theories such as multiverse, it's insane. Evolutionary theory has been disproven for decades. No crossover species. Big bang, big bang, what a sham. Even if you think that's how it happened, where did the material come from? Where did the power come from? You never escape the need for a God. But beloved, I think you and I need to recognize something about the day in which we are living and uh, the reality of the doubt and skepticism that we face in our world, what we need to recognize is that that is nothing new to the Christian church. It has been that way from the very day of Christ's resurrection. The world has always had its reasons not to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we see some of that right here in Acts 28, for example, or 26, uh, example verse 8. The Apostle Paul, speaking to Jews, found, the crowd, found that the crowd viewed the resurrection as something unbelievable. Incredible would be another way to describe that or translate that word. Acts 26, 24, those who believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ are clearly seen to be out of their minds and going mad by the elite of the day. Acts 17, 18, the high-minded of that time viewed the message of Christ as nothing more than the result of idle babbling. Or in verse 32 of Acts 17, uh, especially when it comes to the resurrection, they viewed it as something that was only worth sneering at. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, most viewed the message of Christ and his resurrection simply as a cleverly devised myth or tale. Right? And even, even the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, 
believed in Matthew 27, 63, we see there that they believed that this was nothing more than the result. Christianity was nothing more than the result of a deceiver. Matthew 28, 13, even, even when they were faced with the reality of the resurrection, rather than simply recognizing its truth, the Jewish leadership preferred to spread and cling to a lie. Knowing the whole time that it was a lie. Beloved, to the world, the cross and the resurrection of Christ has always been foolish. And we should not expect it to be any different in our day. The world has always considered the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to be unbelievable. And until the second coming, when every eye is confronted with the reality of the risen Christ and all of his resurrection glory, the world will continue choosing not to believe it. Now, none of that changes the fact that you and I, as believers in Christ, are commissioned by him to go declare this unbelievable message to an unbelieving world. So where do we turn to gain an understanding of how to do that? How can we strengthen our own faith in the reality of Christ's resurrection, despite being inundated by the doubt and skepticism of an unbelieving world? That's what I want to look at this morning from Acts chapter 26. I believe there are at least three things that we can take away from Paul's example that's given to us here in Acts 26. And I think this will help us take a bold stand with the truth of a resurrected Christ in our own day. Perhaps even strengthen you to do so this afternoon when you're with your family. So there are three things I want to draw out from this chapter. First thing is uh, the fact that the resurrection is something promised beforehand in the prophets. We see Paul staking his confidence in to proclaim the resurrection of Christ. He staked that confidence firmly upon the fact that he was not preaching anything new or anything that had not already been made known in the prophets when he was declaring the resurrection of Christ. You see in verses 6 through 8, for example, as he's being tried before Agrippa and Festus, he declares that he is being tried for the hope of the promise that God made to the forefathers. What was the hope of that promise? Well, he explains that more fully in verse 8, where he, he describes the resurrection as being the very thing they were scoffing at. There, Paul is making clear that what he's referring to from the Old Testament is God's promise of raising his people from the dead. The resurrection has always been at the center of hope for God's people. You might remember this, that this was Job's hope. If you remember in Job 19, verses 25 through 27, Job said, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, at the end, the final time, at the last, he will take his stand on the earth. And even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh, I shall behold God, whom I shall behold and whom my eyes shall see and not another. Now look what he's confessing there. No matter what he's suffering, no matter what he's going through, no matter how it ends, Job's hope was that at the end of all things, God was going to plant his feet upon the earth, and Job, despite the fact that his skin will have been destroyed, will be raised up to behold that wonder with his own eyes. Job's hope in the resurrection, the day of resurrection, that's where his confidence was placed. Or we see this again, for example, passages like Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. They confirm with a promise from God that that hope of Job was not in vain. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, it, it says that at the end, after the time of distress that is unparalleled in the history of the world, God says that everyone whose name has been written in his book of life shall be rescued. So after this great persecution comes upon the entire world, everyone whose name has been written in his book will be rescued. What will that rescue look like? How will that rescue come about? That's what's described in verse 2. Where he says in verse 2 that, that um, their rescue, God's rescue plan for his people is the glory of their resurrection. 
so that after the devil and after the world has poured out the fullness of their vile hatred and animosity against God's people and against God's Christ, even for a time being allowed to destroy them, at the end of it all, God is going to show the power of his victory for his people by raising them up from their graves. That he will show the reality that God is greater than the evil world that hates him. God is more uh, able than the world that killed his people. He will raise them up in victory and cause them to stand. That's how they will be rescued. God says at that time in verse 3 that they will shine like the stars forever. Many of those who sleep in the ground will awake. And these, these who are written in the book of life, they will arise to everlasting life. The hope of the resurrection from the dead has always been a hope of God's people. But even in the Old Testament, you need to understand this. You guys with me? I might be a little hard to follow this morning. Just give me an amen and let me know that you're awake every now and then. That'll help me a little bit. Even in the Old Testament, this has been the hope of God's people from the very beginning. But even in the Old Testament, the hope of resurrection was a hope that was built upon the resurrection of the Messiah. It wasn't just a blind hope that one day God's going to raise up all his people. It was a hope that was firmly fixed upon the reality that God would raise his Messiah from the dead. Let me show that to you. First of all, just for the fact that God will raise his Messiah up from the dead after his sufferings, we could look at passages like Psalm 41, 7 through 12, and find abundant proof of that. So in Psalm 41, verses 7 through 8, we see that there, there's this, there's this um, plot, this plan that is being devised against God's Messiah. They're saying that we're going to pour a deadly thing out upon him from which he will not rise. Right, so, so we're going to take care of him once and for all. And we see that being lived out in the gospel accounts when the Jewish leadership joined together with the Gentile rulers to put the, the, the Son of God to death. Then in verse 11 and 12, I believe, that's when it says that after this deadly thing has been poured out upon the Messiah from which His enemy said he will not rise. Then comes the prayer of the Messiah who said, Oh God, raise me up that I may repay them. And then look at verse 11. This is how I know that you delight in me because my enemy will not shout and triumph over me. See, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead was the Father showing his delight in the Son and vindicating his Son in the presence of his Son's enemies. It was the Father raising up his Son so that his Son might destroy those who had conspired to destroy him. Psalm chapter 2, right? Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. (laughs) I'm not going to say that. I want to say, I wanted to say, Jesus isn't just like a big old fluffy teddy bear and unicorns, right? Like, Jesus is a king, and he demands that all serve him. In the resurrection, the father was showing and vindicating his son and showing his delight in him. Now, in passages like Psalm 16, verses 10 through 11, and other places, we see that the well-being of God's people and their own resurrection was resting upon the resurrection of the Messiah clearly. So Psalm 16, verses 10 through 11. David's confidence that his own soul would not be abandoned in death was resting on the prophetic insight that he had been given into the reality that God would not abandon his Holy One and allow his Holy One to see corruption. So, so David was saying, my soul will rest securely because, and I know that you will not abandon my soul in Sheol because you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. In Acts chapter 2, Peter, under the illuminating power of the Holy Spirit, says that this is talking about the Messiah's resurrection. Here, clearly, David was hoping in the Messiah's resurrection as his own uh, proof of his well-being for his soul. Isaiah 53, verse 10 through 11 is probably the clearest passage where the resurrection of the Messiah is is held up as the ground of all of God's people's well-being. 
In Isaiah 53.10, it says, After the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, was crushed under the hand of Yahweh himself, after he had given his life as a guilt offering for the sins of his people, it says that in death he would see his offspring, he would prolong his days, and the will of the Lord would prosper in his hand. So here you have, to be given over as a guilt offering means that you're dead. Right? There was no guilt offering offered unto God on the altar of Israel that was not dead when it was offered. Here the Messiah is being described and depicted as offering himself up on behalf of his people in the same way that a guilt offering was offered up for sinners. And yet after he has offered himself up, it says that he will prolong his days. What does that mean if it does not mean he will take his life back in his hands again and he will rise up victorious afterward? Now, where it says that the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand, verse 11 describes that as that will of God prospering in the Messiah's hand as uh, the Messiah doing the work of justifying the many. In other words, God's people, their right standing before God was based on the Messiah's suffering and resurrection on their behalf. That's Isaiah 53, 10 through 11. You can see this in other places as well. In Psalm 22, the one forsaken by God and abandoned to suffer at the hands of ungodly men, at the end of it all is delivered and rescued by Yahweh. Or the book of Jonah. Jonah served as a type of a resurrected Savior, bringing the message of salvation to the Gentiles. Or um, even as Jesus pointed out to the Pharisees in Matthew 22, 31 through 32, God does not say that he was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Even long after they had died, God was still saying, I am their God. Present tense. Now, all of this is why in Acts 26, 22 through 23, Paul says, Acts 26, 22 through 23, this is why Paul says there that in preaching about Jesus Christ, He was not stating anything other than what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ would suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. In other words, the hope of the resurrection was not an invention of some confused Jewish fishermen in the first century. It was a promise of God reaching back millennia prior to the arrival of Jesus of Nazareth. And so as we stand before an unbelieving world to declare the reality and the hope of what is to them an unbelievable message, then we must stand firm in the fact that this hope of the Messiah's suffering and resurrection had been promised by God for centuries prior to it taking place. So that's number one. How can we stand boldly in the face of the culture that denies the resurrection of Christ. Well, we stand remembering the fact that the resurrection was promised beforehand in the prophets. Number two, we remember the reality, we remember that the reality of Christ's resurrection is a fact proven in history. The reality of Christ's resurrection is a fact proven in history. Paul appeals to this in Acts 26, verses 24 through 26. When after Festus charges Paul with being out of his mind and being driven mad by his great learning, Paul says back to Festus, I'm not out of my mind, but I'm uttering words of sober truth. I'm speaking the truth to you. And I know that the king knows about these matters, and therefore I speak also to him with confidence since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. That's really what I want to focus on, that last phrase. Paul was confident, especially to speak to King Agrippa, about the matters of Christ's suffering and resurrection, because none of these things had been done in secret. None of these things had been done in some remote place, often some... Uh, remote corner of the world, the sufferings and even the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead were facts of history that had been accomplished out in the open for everyone to see. 
It was clearly demonstrated even by the effects that the resurrection had in history that could not be explained in any other way. So we see this in many ways, even in the pages of the New Testament. For example, the resurrection had credible and examinable eyewitnesses. Credible and examinable eyewitnesses. In 1 Corinthians 15, after stating that Christ suffered and died, was buried and rose again from the dead according to the scriptures, Paul says that Jesus proved his resurrection by appearing to a multitude of people. So in verse 5, he appeared to Cephas and then the twelve. Verse 6, he appeared at one time to more than 500 brothers at the same time, most of whom were still alive when Paul wrote this letter. Verse 7 says that then he appeared to James, which is referring to Jesus' brother, James, and then all the apostles. And then verse 8, last of all, he appeared even to Paul as well. One of the more powerful testimonies to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead was that when that message was spreading, there were many eyewitnesses that could be interviewed and examined in order to discover the truth for themselves. And I think it's important to remember that these weren't just general unknown people. Like sometimes we say, you know, there are some people who don't really like that bow tie, Pastor Seth. (laughs) Well, who are these some people? I don't know, just some people. It wasn't like that with the resurrection. No, in Scripture, we actually have names being mentioned. We have geographical locations being attached to those names so that as this letter goes out into all the world and the resurrection of Christ is being proclaimed throughout the entire known world, they could all travel to these places and they could go ask for these people by name and they could confirm these things for themselves. In fact, what's maybe even more powerful, or at least in tandem with that, is the power of the reality that there is no contradicting testimony that is offered to us from the first century. If Jesus' suffering and resurrection was all a hoax and a sham, then where are all the works that are disproving it and discrediting it? People like Bart Ehrman and those who are scholastics in the world want to say, well, that's because the church had all the power and they were wielding the power and they were able to deceive the masses. Are you, are you out of your mind? Do you remember how big the church was when Jesus rose from the dead? No more than 120 people. Do you remember the, the pain and the suffering that they went through just to declare the message of a resurrected Jesus? They didn't have the power. They were being persecuted. They were being opposed. They were being oppressed. And yet, the message of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected continued to spread undaunted. If it was all a sham and all this was made up, then where are the works that are saying, hey, you know what? I was there. I saw everything that happened and nothing of what these apostles said happened actually took place. As Paul says in Acts 26, this hasn't been done in a corner. And I know none of this has escaped Agrippa's notice, King Agrippa. Jesus hit the scene with a splash, and the reality of his life, death, and resurrection had an impact on the society around him. Everyone knew it was true. That's one thing we could look at, credible and examinable witnesses. Secondly, we could look at suffering witnesses to show the effects of the reality of the resurrection in this world, the suffering witnesses. So adding to the credible and examinable witnesses is the fact that these very witnesses suffered horrifically for declaring this message of Jesus' resurrection. So if the resurrection never happened, then the apostles would be the ones who made made this whole story up, and they would be the ones who knew it was a lie. If the resurrection never happened, then the apostles were telling a lie, and they made up this whole story about this Messiah being resurrected. Some unbelievers even speculate that the reason 
that they would have done this would be because they thought it would be a good way to gain recognition for themselves or to cheat people out of money or to gain power and influence over the masses, right? Some, some selfish motivation, some selfish gain was to be had in constructing this fantastic story of a Messiah dying for the sins of his people and then rising again from the dead. Now, if that were the case, if that's what happened and this was all just a sham, then we would expect these very apostles to abandon the lie once they discovered that preaching this message of Jesus' resurrection only brought more suffering upon them. But history shows us just the opposite. Not only did these witnesses maintain their testimony to the fact that Jesus had been raised from the dead, most of them were martyred, continuing to declare that truth with their dying breath. They suffered horrifically to declare this message of a resurrected Messiah. Now, why would they do that if they knew that the whole thing was a lie? 1 Corinthians 14, verse 9, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 9 through 13. Paul describes what living a life for this resurrected Christ led to for him. Paul said the life that God had called the apostles to live in declaring the message of this gospel was like living a life of being condemned to death. It was, it was like being made a spectacle to the whole world. Not embraced, but mocked and scoffed and laughed at, persecuted and oppressed. Paul says in verse 11 that this, to this hour as apostles we are hungry and we are thirsty. We are poorly clothed and roughly treated. We are homeless and laboring hard. In verse 12, we are reviled and persecuted. Verse 13, we are slandered. We who proclaim this message of Christ are to the world as though the scum of the earth. We are despised to the entire world. What were they gaining in proclaiming this message of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected? They were gaining nothing except a life of suffering. 2 Corinthians 11, 23 through 27 describes this even more fully, where Paul says that being a minister of Christ meant for him more labors, more imprisonments, beatings without number, frequently in danger of death, five times being flogged, that's 39 lashes, 40 minus 1, beaten with rods, stoned, shipwrecked multiple times, even being left adrift in the sea for a day and night, in constant danger from everyone everywhere, many sleepless nights, starvation, thirst, hunger, hunger, being cold, and being exposed to the elements. Now does that sound like Paul is gaining anything by declaring this message of Christ resurrected? No. What he's gaining is a life of suffering and misery if the resurrection's not true. Which is why he says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus Christ has not been raised from the dead, then we are of all men most to be pitied. You know what's sad about that is that most of us could not say that of ourselves. We could not say that if the resurrection of Christ isn't true, then my life stinks. Most of us have pretty good lives. We live comfortably. We don't suffer much. We don't throw ourselves out there to be ridiculed and mocked and scoffed at for the sake of Christ. We don't do that all that often. We got our cushy little home. We got our nice little job. We go to bed in our comfortable bed. Right? We, some of us can even get eight hours of sleep every night. Many of us can't. We got refrigerators full of food. We got cabinets full of food. We've got water. We've got everything that we that we need and, and, and most of what we want. I've heard people say before, well, I guess if, if, if none of this is true, then at least I'm covered when I die. You know, if, if it is true, at least I'm covered when I die. If it's not true, then eh, oh well, it's fine. Is that really what the Christian's hope and confidence in the resurrected Christ is supposed to be? No, you're, we are to know the living Christ. We are to have the hope of God in our souls, which is Christ in you. 
Paul says, don't you know this about yourselves, that Christ is in you, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Don't you know the living Christ in your own souls? That's what gives the Christian strength. That's what gives the Christian endurance. That's what enables the Christian to persevere through these trials. That's why it's worth the Christian hungering and thirsting and going hungry and starving and having no clothing and being homeless and suffering persecution. That's why it's worth it to the Christian. Because the Christian knows the real resurrected Jesus Christ and knows that it's not in vain. Well, this suffering, that's, that is what carrying the message of a resurrected Christ earned the apostles. A life of deep, dismal suffering. Eventually climaxing in martyrdom for all but one of them. <laughs> now, you don't do that. You don't willingly and joyfully continue giving yourself to a life of suffering like that if you know that what you are suffering for is a lie that you, made, that you yourself made up. Paul Washer wrote this in one of his books. I can't remember which one. I meant to get the reference for you. But Paul Washer wrote, The only explanation for their tenacity and persistence in the face of such suffering and death is that the resurrection is true a historical reality, and the apostles and other Christians were simply communicating what they had truly witnessed. So that's a second way that the resurrection has impacted history. We could offer other historical proofs as well, such as the empty tomb. If you want to discredit the resurrection of Christ, just come up with a body. Show the body of Christ. Well, that never happened. Or we could say, the, we could look at the transformation of the disciples as proof of the resurrection. Before the resurrection and in Christ's sufferings, they all abandoned him the night he was arrested. Peter even denied knowing Jesus in the face of a little servant girl. He swore a curse on himself, saying, I do not know the man in the face of this young little slave girl. They were still hiding in the upper room with the door locked three days after Jesus' death. You know, the only reason why the women were the ones to go to the grave to anoint Jesus' body after he had died was because the men were too afraid. They were all hiding in the upper room. And yet, after Christ's resurrection and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, they all took their stand in the public to declare the message of Christ. They hit the streets declaring the resurrected Christ. They went and stood in the heart of the temple, surrounded by the leadership that had put Jesus to death, and they boldly declared the message that God had given them through Jesus Christ. Now what can explain such a radical transformation of those who were timid and fearful before little slave girls? To all of a sudden, those who are as bold as lions in the midst of those who put their own master to death. The reality of the resurrection. We could point to the conversion of the enemies of Christ as evidence, such as James and Jude and the Apostle Paul. We could even point to the establishment and the continuation of the church over the last 2,000 years, despite the united efforts of entire countries and empires to stamp it out. The church has continued on, and that proves that an otherworldly power is at work in the church and among believers to keep the devil and the world from overpowering them. And wiping them out. Nothing less than the very power of Christ's resurrection and his resurrection life coursing through the veins of the church has been what has kept the church around. Now, there are numerous ways that the resurrection of Jesus Christ has been proven and demonstrated in history. Proving that this has not been done in a corner. It's an event that has reshaped the entire trajectory of world history for 2,000 years. And you and I, based on that, we can take up these realities and confidently declare this unbelievable message to an unbelieving world. Yet there's something that we need to remember, and that is that none of what we have looked at so far is enough 
to convert a single sinner and convince them of the reality of Christ's resurrection. And this is the third point we want to look at as we come to a close. How can we stand in the midst of a world that is vehemently opposed to the supernatural message of Christ's resurrection? Well, remember that it was promised by God and the prophets. It was demonstrated and proven by Christ in history. But then thirdly, that it is only the work of the Holy Spirit that can cause a sinner to be convinced of its reality. Or believing in the resurrection is dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul doesn't state this explicitly, but he refers to this in Acts 26, 12 through 13, when he describes himself as being on the way to Damascus to oppress and persecute the church when all of a sudden he and everyone with him was stopped, stopped in their tracks. The only thing that could keep Paul from pressing forward and persecuting the church was Christ revealing himself to Paul. Acts 26, verse 19, Paul calls this a a heavenly vision that was given to him when his eyes were opened and he could see the reality of who Jesus Christ truly is. Now, even though it manifests differently in our lives than it does in the life of Paul, or than it did in the life of Paul, the reality is that the same kind of awakening must happen to us if we are going to believe. Now, I don't mean that you have to have a radical conversion story like that of the Apostle Paul's. It has to be as explosive as his is. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the, the, the same power that illuminated the heart and mind of the Apostle Paul to see the truth has to be poured out into your heart in order for you to see the truth. The only reason for okay, the only reason that anyone in this room actually, truly, wholeheartedly believes in the resurrection of Jesus is because the Holy Spirit has opened the eyes of your heart so that you now know what is true and you can believe in it. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, right? We, the only reason that we come to know the power of God that is at work within us and to recognize the source of that power as being God's power demonstrated in the resurrection of Christ. The only reason we come to know that, verses 17 and 18 says is because God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, has given to us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. The only reason you come to know the power of God as it has been manifested in the resurrection of Christ is because the Holy Spirit has communicated to your soul the reality of that power. So that verse 18, as verse 18 says, the eyes of our hearts are enlightened And we come to know the truth. It's all dependent on the Holy Spirit. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 8 and 10. Where he's contrasting what the rulers of the world did with Christ and what believers are now empowered to do with Christ. In verse 10, the rulers of this age did not understand the truth of Christ. Otherwise, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. If they knew who he was and they knew the reality of his nature and being and person and the glory of what he had come to do, they would never have crucified him. And yet look at verse 10. Paul says, they didn't see the truth, but what the world was not enabled to see, God has revealed to us. And how does he reveal that to us? Through the Holy Spirit. That is how you and I have been enabled to know Jesus of Nazareth as a crucified and resurrected Savior. 1 John 5 says the same thing. In verse 10, we're told that we believe in the Son of God and we have the testimony in ourselves, this testimony that the Father has given about His Son, that testimony that climaxed the morning when He he raised His Son from the dead. We have that testimony within ourselves. Verse 6 tells us that the reason we have that testimony in ourselves is because we have the Spirit who bears witness to the truth within our hearts. 
See, it's all about the Holy Spirit coming and illuminating our hearts and minds to know what is true about Christ. That's how we become believers. And that's how we become confident in Christ, the resurrected one. Now, we can go forth reasoning with the world to see and to believe the facts of the gospel, but we must never lose sight of the fact that no one gets reasoned into the kingdom of God. You're not going to get anyone into the kingdom of God because you can present 10,000 pieces of evidence that prove that Jesus was risen from the dead. That's not going to get anyone into the kingdom. What gets us into the kingdom is being transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God's beloved Son by the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of God taking the truth of God and applying its power within our hearts. That's what creates believers in the resurrected Christ. you You need to hold fast to that when you go out into this world and you preach the gospel of Jesus. The world is antagonistic to that message. What's going to give you any confidence to go stand before them and declare the message of a Messiah that they hate and don't want to hear about? Knowing that it's not up to you to convert those sinners. It's up to Christ, and it's up to the Spirit of God to bring them to a saving knowledge of the truth. That's what's going to give you boldness and confidence to stand, even in a crowd that is opposing you over that message of Christ. Now, just in closing application, two things. Krishna, I want to tell you that, and I want to encourage you, that you need to understand this. You need to understand that your ability to see the truth of Christ crucified and resurrected took no less greater of an act than that which knocked the Apostle Paul off of his horse and converted him. You must see that if you are going to stand, you must see that if you are going to stand by faith with confidence in the midst of this hostile world. You don't make yourself see the truth, but like Peter, if you see the truth, it's because your Father who is in heaven has revealed the truth to you. So don't be afraid to take your stand with boldness in the truth that God's grace has enabled you to know. Don't let the world shame you and cower you into silence. God has opened your heart to see the truth of Christ. Take your stand in that reality and trust in the power of God. Yeah, amen. Your faith is not resting in the wisdom of men. If you are truly a believer in Christ, your your faith is not resting in cleverly devised myths or deceptions and lies that were craftily uh, presented to you. Your faith, if you are a Christian, is built upon the very power of God. Beloved, you need to take your stand boldly and unashamedly in that power. And no matter what it costs you or what suffering may result, you need to stand and glorify Christ with your life by remaining confident in your faith in him, even in the face of your enemies. None who hope in Christ will ever be put to shame, and the sneerings and the oppression of the world that does not see the reality of Christ will never be able to change that. Secondly, brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you not to cower in shame before the unbelieving skeptical world piggybacking on what we just said. Don't let your faith be shaken by the fact that the world in large measure does not believe. They need to hear the truth and they need to hear, they need the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of their hearts so that they can see and believe the truth. So don't be afraid to declare your hope in the resurrected Christ to the unbelieving world because that is what the Holy Spirit is pleased to use in bringing unbelievers to see the glory of Christ for themselves. We are commissioned to stand and to speak the truth of the resurrected King, Jesus Christ. And even if the world considers it unbelievable, we still are called by Christ to take our stand in our own time and to declare the gospel with faithfulness and to stand with valor and fight with the truth of the glory of our King. I pray that the Lord will enable us to do that very thing as we keep our eyes fixed on 
the resurrected Christ. Christ is risen, and he is risen indeed. And let's pray together. Father, you've given us much reason and much confidence to hope in the truthfulness of Christ. We don't, we don't put our faith in a Savior without evidence, Lord, without reason, without logic behind that decision to come and to rest in Christ. But Father, I thank you that you have enabled us to see even beyond what those means would offer us, even beyond what the evidence can show us, beyond what our own logic can prove to us. You have shown us the reality of the power of Christ in our own hearts. God, I thank you that you've brought us up from the grave, this spiritual cesspool in which we were all slain and dead. Dead before you in our trespasses and transgressions, our sins and iniquities, Lord, you raised us up out of that, and you made us alive together with Christ. I thank you for that grace. Lord Jesus, help us live in the fullness of that life that you've imparted to us. And I pray as we, even as we sing this closing hymn, as we hear the benediction, as we go forward into the world with joy in our hearts in this resurrected King, Lord, please help us walk in the true power in the life that you have gained for us by your own resurrection. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. We pray you'd be with us in his name. Amen. Amen. Hear a benediction from Romans chapter 6, verses 8 through 10. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, may, may you go forth and know the power of Christ's resurrection in your own life. May you live in the fullness of the life he has gained for you. Amen. May you go in the peace of Christ's name.